The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Loving Father, again we come before you. And Father, we realize that you are an infinitely holy God. And Father, the very fact of our being able to gather together in your name, in your very presence, Father, without there being a great altar outside and the smell of burning flesh rising up in our nostrils, without there being a great veil that separates us from you and us only able to stand from a distance, It's only because of what Jesus has done. And Father, we realize again that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, unchangeable in all of your glory. And Father, we do not come and meet before a God who is somehow more gracious than he was in the Old Testament. You are the very same God. And Father, as we approach this topic and all these topics and the attributes of God, we do so with a sense of fear and trembling, lest we make the mistake of misrepresenting you in any way, shape, or form. And so, Father, we ask you that the power of the Holy Spirit would be here, that he would teach us the truth of the Bible as we look at these scriptures and texts. And Father, we seek his help, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, of course, the book of Isaiah and chapter 6. I was thinking about different texts and different stories we could look at as a launching point about the holiness of God. And this one just kept coming back, and I was thinking about some others, but we'll go to this one as a starting place. Isaiah 6, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 8. The word of God says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Amazing story, amazing scene. And you know, as I'm thinking about the study and the attributes of God, the one thing that I don't want us to do is to think about what a dry, dusty study this is. It's easy 
especially when you read some of the theologians and some of the academics, to kind of settle into this dim, kind of uh, dry topic. But the Bible never treats the attributes of God. God. The Bible never treats God displaying Himself in all of His glory just like that. Listen to Exodus 34. And this is Moses and the Lord are together, and I believe they're on the mountaintop. And the Bible says, The Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your possessions. Both Isaiah and Moses confronted with the absolute glory and holiness of God are struck down. Moses makes haste and bows himself right down with his face to the ground. And I imagine Isaiah wasn't just standing there looking up. I think he was curled up on the floor of the temple with his hands over his head. And he was saying, woe is me. In the Hebrew, it's just the word oi. There's this groan, this, this great gasp of hopelessness and despair. Woe is me. But both of them finished going out in worship and service of the Lord, having been confronted by the attributes of God. So tonight, as we look at this topic of the attribute of God's holiness, my hope, my prayer, is as we look at it, we get a fresh view of the Lord Jesus Christ, a fresh view of God in His holiness, and it drives us not just to know something neat about God and something cool from the Scriptures about God, but it changes us and drives us to worship and love and serve and go out in strength for our God. It's not just about studying a topic to know a topic. It's studying this that we might know God and all of who He is. Well, God's holiness, you say, what is it? It depicts the moral purity and the excellence of God. The root idea of holiness is to be separate or set apart. God's holiness is His infinite moral perfection. There is nothing like God in that sense in all of creation, in all of existence. God is completely and totally alone in that sense. His holiness is first, His moral purity, and it's second, His divine majesty. And you see that in that scene in Isaiah's uh, story there. Now, there's a debate about where Isaiah was. I think he was standing in the temple. He might not have been. It might have been just a vision he saw in, in his own place. But we do know this. Just look at some of the, the elements of the scene. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And then he adds the words, lofty and exalted, lifted up on high. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And all I can think about when I think about that scene is just this cascading cloth just billowing out and flooding down. And the idea of the great train of a king was his glory and his majesty. And you see both of those things, his purity... As the seraphim keep crying out, holy, 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 and you see the majesty of God as he's portraying with his train just 
flooding down and filling the space. God is, God's holiness is first his moral purity and second his divine majesty. God's holiness is the beauty of all of other, God's other attributes. The holiness of God is his, the beauty of his face, if you like. God in his holiness is undefiled, unmarked, unblemished, absolute purity. God in his holiness is set apart and set above all else. Just as his omnipotence is the strength of his arms and his omniscience is the wisdom of his mind and his eternality is the endurance of his person, so God's holiness is the beauty of his face. I love the way he describes the seraphim. With two wings they covered their faces. The glory of God's holiness was so beautiful, so amazing, that the seraphim couldn't even bring themselves to look up, and their wings crossed over in front of their faces. And it's almost like their voices called out underneath their wings, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God is the highest of His attributes. It's the beauty of all the other ones. If God is not holy, meaning morally pure and divinely majestic, then his justice could become cruelty. If God is not holy, his mercy becomes foolish pity. If God is not holy, his sovereignty becomes tyranny from which there is no escape whatsoever. But, praise God, he is absolutely holy. God's holiness is his purity infinitely more pure than the purest diamond in color and clarity, infinitely more bright than the brightest of all the largest suns in all the galaxy, shining in all their brightest heat, is the purity of God's holiness. Notice the seraphim. They could have called out all kinds of things. They could have said all kinds of things about God's attributes. They could have said, powerful, powerful, powerful. Then they would have been right because God is all-powerful. They could have said, love, love, love to one another, because that would have been fitting, because God is certainly love, right? They could have said, omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. They could have called out all different parts of the attributes of God in worship to God, back and forth, one to the other, but instead, they call out, holy, holy, holy. So God's holiness is his moral purity, his divine majesty. It's also his devotion to his own glory. God is set apart and devoted to his own glory. And because of his inherent holiness, God is absolutely distinct from everything else, impure or unholy. Habakkuk would actually say, your eyes are too pure to even look upon something that's impure. I think I mentioned before the scene in the garden where the man the woman have committed that first sin. And their eyes are open. They see their nakedness and they hide amongst the trees. And God's grace in them gave them that sense of not knowing nakedness until they had sinned. And they felt that shame. And they tried to hide away from God. And as God came close, the, the way our Bibles describe it is he was moving back and forth amongst the trees of the garden. I did a course in, and learned Hebrew. I wish I could remember some of it, but I did learn it. And one of the things we did every week was we do a little devotional on Hebrew, taking something from the Hebrew text to just kind of give us a taster of what we could grasp if we pursued Hebrew. 
And one week, one of the things that Prof gave us was this little scene out of the, the garden in Eden. And he said, when it says the Spirit moved back and forth amongst the trees of the garden, it doesn't mean that he just walked casually back and forth. He said in the Hebrew, it gets, gives you a sense of an intense rushing wind, furiously moving back and forth amongst the trees of the garden. Why? Because God's holiness had been spoken against and acted against by the man, the woman. They had offended him by their actions. And he calls out from a distance, where are you? So that he won't come face to face with them and his holiness would strike out against them and destroy them for their sin. You wonder if that could possibly happen? Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, that's exactly what happened to them. God's holiness is His purity. It's His inherent holiness. It's His moral purity. It's His divine majesty. It's all those things kind of wrapped up together. Now, like I said before, I don't want to do all the talking. I want to let the Scripture do as much talking as possible tonight. I want to let the wealth of Scripture, because one of the biggest struggles about doing a study in the holiness of God isn't what you put into it. It's what you've got time to put in and what you've got to cut out because it, we'd be here all night if we looked at every verse that described the holiness of God. But we did categorize it. So like this, God's holiness is, number one, incomparable. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, the Bible says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, uh, Moses, I believe, is saying this, and he's saying there's nobody in existence like you. You're the only one. Absolutely pure, majestic in holiness. Uh, we can look at it and say God's character is holy. In Psalm 22, verse 3, Jesus, it's the words, his words on the cross, written by Moses, sorry, I should say it's David's psalm that looks forward to Christ's suffering on the cross. And this is what David says. He says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. There is none holy like our God. And even in his suffering, you can imagine the Lord Jesus up on the cross and he's suffering for all the sin of the world. He who knew no sin has been made sin for us. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little bit later, he reaffirms, yet you are holy. Even in what the Lord Jesus was caused to suffer, the Father was still holy in allowing him to do that. And he who knew no sin was made sin for us. God's name is holy in Scripture. Isaiah 15, 57, sorry, verse 15 says this, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He said his name is holy. When we were doing Hebrew, uh, our, our prof was, I believe, a, a Jewish lady. And whenever she would read the Hebrew Old Testament, whenever she came across the name Elohim in Hebrew, and it's different, it's not written with the usual vowel pointing they use in Hebrew, and she would always hit that word, and just by default she would say, Hadonai. She would never say Elohim. Because to them that name was so holy, they figured to put it across a human mouth and a human lips would defile it even for a man to speak it. In fact, the Old Testament Hebrew scholars back in the Old Testament days, they would never say anything but the name. 
They would just call him the name or Adonai. It was a substitute name so they wouldn't defile God's name by using human lips to speak it. That's how holy they regarded God. That's how holy God is. God's very words are holy. In Psalm 60, verse 6, the Bible says, God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sakoth. His speaking is even holy. Absolutely holy. He, he doesn't even speak dark words or, or, or unpure words. His very words coming out of his mouth are holy. The Bible says in Jeremiah 23, verse 9, As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine, because of the Lord and because of His holy words. What's Jeremiah saying? God's words are so holy and they're so gripping to my soul that I have become, my heart's broken within me and my bones tremble. What did God say in Isaiah 66? But to this one I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. God who is so infinite that the heaven of the heavens cannot contain Him. The earth cannot contain Him. They can't build a temple to contain God. But God says, even though I'm immensely holy and infinite like that, I will turn and I will have regard for the one who trembles at my word. This is the God we come to worship. Brothers and sisters, I think it needs to, we need to stop and step back and go, how do we regard God as we come into His presence week by week? How do we regard God as we go through our day? And the things that we do and the things that we say, we pray. Jesus taught us to pray. My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Meaning what? Meaning in everything I do, may your name be regarded and upheld as holy. So when I do my woodworking, I do it in such a way that God's name is made holy. When I conduct my affairs with my wife, our marriage, our marriage ought to betray and portray that God is holy. We do ministry, when we pray, when we preach, when we evangelize, when we witness. Whatever we're doing, it ought to declare in our actions that God is holy in our lives. God's words are holy. God's works are holy. In Psalm 145 and verse 17, the Bible says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in his deeds. Now, only the King James, for some strange reason, puts the word holy in Psalm 145, 17. Other translations put the word kind in. But I think the King James gets it better. I think it should be, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and holy in all His deeds. Everything He does has the character and the description that it is holy. The way He created, the way He saved us, the way He redeemed us, the way He sovereignly works in the affairs of men, all declare that God is absolutely holy. God's kingdom, rule, and reign is holy. In Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. God is ruling and reigning over the affairs of all the nations and over His kingdom, and He does so in a holy manner. He conducts His affairs in ruling and reigning in holiness. In Revelation 21, verses 22 and verse 27, the Bible says this, uh, John speaking, I saw no temple in it, 
for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. So God's kingdom, his rule and reign will never allow anything unholy into it. All that we're talking about this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, that's the same idea exactly. Those who are sexually immoral and impure and greedy and covetous and a whole bunch of other things too cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have to be washed clean before we can be invited in to inherit that. In 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10, it's the same idea as Ephesians 5. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? God also should be magnified because He is the Holy God. His holiness demands that we respond in praise and worship, just like the seraphim. And the idea, by the way, when it says they called out one to another in verse 3 of Isaiah 6, it's not the idea that they all said it once and that was it. It's the idea that they never stop crying out back and forth, one to the other, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and so on. And it isn't that they, they do it in a, just a massive noise. I'm convinced that because God is a holy God and a God of order, that their voices speak in beautiful harmony and chorus, back and forth, one to the other, without any kind of chaos. It's ordered and beautiful and pure, but they cannot let a moment pass without one of them declaring to the other, holy is our God. God should be magnified because he's holy. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 16, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He's catch that. That's the same passage you read last week, bro, in 1 Chronicles 16. All that beautiful singing there. The speaking about the people of God coming together to worship God because He is absolutely holy. Because of the great things that He has done. Wouldn't it be different? Wouldn't it be great if we came together week by week into this house to worship God? This is the building. But if we, as we came in here, came with that same idea to give thanks to the Lord, to call on His name, to make known His deeds amongst the peoples, if that was our heart's desire, that should be our heart's desire. In fact, even more than the nation of Israel who did not know grace like we know it, who did not know the filling of the Holy Spirit like we have, that was their response to God. Brothers and sisters, we worship and serve a holy God who deserves the full flow of praise from our heart. Everything we can give to God to worship and honor and praise Him. Revelation 4, verse 8, the Bible says, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And I'm sure that that scene in Revelation 4 with the creature with six wings and the seraphim with six wings and Isaiah 6 and the similarity of what they're saying, they refer to the same thing. 
And they never cease to say that. They're constantly expressing that praise to God. You know, we can keep going. There's so much more. But you know what? The question has to be asked. How does God's holiness affect us? What does that bring to us? What does that call us to do? Well, first of all, we want to see what Jesus himself said about holiness and his people. In John 17, verse 17, it was Jesus' desire. It was his prayer to his Father. This is what he said. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Set apart. Make them holy by your word, by your truth. Why is preaching and teaching so important in the church? And it isn't just because it's my job security. Don't get me wrong. The reason why preaching is so important in the church is because that is how God creates a people for himself. I've been reading a lot of books, uh, some newer ones and some older ones on uh, church growth and how to uh, revitalize and revive and work in a church to, to refresh it. And I came across a book by Mark Dever, and I strongly recommend it. If you want to do some reading, it's called Deliberate Church. And he goes, and you know what he says? He says, you know what? It's preaching. It's the four Ps. It's preaching. It's prayer. It's personal relationships. And it's patience. And he told his, the elders when they hired him at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he said, I don't care if every ministry in the church fails but one. That's not a very good thing to say on your, uh, when you're being reviewed or hired for a job in your interview. I don't care if every ministry in this church fails except for one. They're probably not going to hire you. But he said it, and they hired him, so it might not be so bad, I guess. But he said, I don't care if everyone fails except for this, the preaching of the Word of God in this church. And they sort of looked at him, why? He said, because it's the preaching of the Word of God. It doesn't matter who it is that does it. It's the preaching of the Word of God that God uses to sanctify and make His people holy and prepare them and shape them and make them fit for God's use. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus Himself is actively involved in making His people holy. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, it's a famous passage on marriage and how a husband should love his wife. But the analogy, the description is so beautiful. It says that Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We saw that in Ephesians 5, verses 2 and 3 so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. So Jesus Christ isn't just praying that God will make them holy. He is actively involved himself in setting his people apart, in washing them clean, by bringing the word into their lives. Why is it so important, brothers and sisters, that we are in this word? I was sharing with one of our sisters this week about the preciousness of God's Word. I should say she was sharing with me, and I was just so encouraged to hear her thoughts on the value and the preciousness of the Word of God and what a great gift we have and how quickly we put it aside for something else. It's the Word of God that God uses to make us holy. And Christ Himself, He washes us with the constant soaking us in His Word that He might cleanse us and present us to Him as His bride, like a beautiful bride in a white garment. So Christ Himself is actively making us holy. Christ is also the perfect example of holiness for His people. 
In Hebrews 7, verse 26, the Bible says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And you know what? He was that. And he came and walked this earth. And he let men say all kinds of horrible things to him and about him. He allowed men to take nails and nail him to a cross that he might make us holy. He is our perfect example. Absolutely. We don't serve a Savior who's failing and flawed. You ever notice, my kids hate when I do this, you watch a movie and you start analyzing the content of the movie. And when I was a kid, we watched the Superman, uh, who remembers uh, the League of Justice, I think it was called. (laughs) Yeah, League of Justice, right? Superman and Batman and, and all these other superheroes. I can't remember all their names. But back then, right? All their costumes were red and red and blue and they were bright colors and they always were ta-da, doing the right thing. You ever notice the superhero movies now? All their costumes are dark gray and black. They're all flawed. They're all making alliances. They're all slipping and failing. And my kids hate it when I go, you know what, guys? What that shows us is our culture wants a Savior who's flawed. But God has given us a Savior, a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, pure, separate. We have a Savior who is infinitely set apart from us and yet He condescended to bring us to Himself. And He's working in us to make us holy like He is. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day. The older I get, the more I can't wait for it. Is that when this world is going to give way. And this work inside of me will all be done and Christ will finish the work. And I will, as it, like, as it were, like a bride in a white garment, I will walk down the aisle of heaven and the Lord Jesus will meet me there. And the work will be all done. And I will be perfect. As perfect as a human can be in His presence. And His work will be finished in us. What a day that's going to be, hey? What an amazing Savior we have who reached down to take us from the pit. I was trying to figure out a way to to get in my head the idea of our sin and God's holiness. And the only scene I can come up with, I, I saw it in a movie, and pardon me if it offends somebody, but it's like taking a human being and dumping him in raw human sewage and pulling him up. And the the sight and the smell and all of that is absolutely repulsive to all of us. We would run away and hide our faces. And that's what Christ has done. He's reached down and He's pulled us up and He's washed us off in His own precious blood. He's cleansing us and making us a people fit for Himself. And one day He's going to clothe us in those white robes when the work is done. God's holiness isn't just for God. He's also making us holy. We're called saints. That is an old name that the old brethren used to use. God bless them. Always talking about saints. Saints and ain'ts. But He's making us saints. He's making us holy like He is. Never the same. Because we will never be intrinsically and inherently holy. We will be made holy. It's different. But similar. 
How then should we respond? Christ is doing his work in us. How should we respond to God's holiness as his people? Well, Isaiah gives us the perfect example to begin with. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. We lament over our sin. And I don't mean just as we come to Christ for salvation. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you grieved and wept and lamented over your sin? I mean those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. When our sin becomes so abhorrent to us that when we do it, we just want to curl up in a ball and die and cry out to God. There's a sense in which I'm sure Isaiah was on the floor with his hands over his head because he knew he was uncovered before God. And he lamented over his sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our response to the holiness of God ought to cause us to lament over our sin. But it doesn't stop there. I love the scene. God, he cries out, woe is me. What's did God do? He sends a seraphim out to the great altar outside. And the seraphim takes a pair of coals, uh, tongs. He lifts off a coal off the altar. A picture of the burning animal that was wholly consumed by God in, in God's holiness and justice. And he takes that coal and he places it on Isaiah's lips. And I don't think it's just figurative. I think it's literal. I think the, pole, the coal hit his lips and that as it hit his lips and burned. And forever Isaiah would have walked around, I'm convinced of, with a great big burn scar on his mouth, where God touched his mouth with that coal, and he applied the value of that burnt offering right to Isaiah's problem area, his mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God in grace deals with his sin, and he cleanses him with that coal. And then God says, who will go? Now, I don't know what I would have done. I said, well, you know, I'm going down to the first aid center to get this burn thing fixed up and cleaned up. And when it's all healed, I'll come back and we can maybe talk. No, he opens his mouth. And I'm sure as he began to speak and the skin stretched and moved in his mouth, it was in pain that he said, here am I. Send me. That's God's grace, isn't it? Marvelous grace that he deals with our sin and makes us holy. The holiness of God ought to begin in us by causing us to lament of our sin. The holiness of God also should present or produce in us a reverential fear of God. In Psalm 89 verse 7, the Bible says, A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. Isaiah 8 verse 13 Isaiah is speaking, he says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. In other words, they should look at God and be absolutely in reverential awe, amazed and stunned and almost speechless. The Aussies have a great expression, gobsmacked. Just can't even speak. When we read those passages, brothers and sisters, don't go flying off past them. Let your eyes glaze over the page as you read down. Stop. Go back. Meditate and think. The seraphim didn't say, Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They didn't say, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. They said, Holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew writing, if you want to make a great emphasis, you repeat the word. Like when God comes and calls Samuel, 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 twice for emphasis. But when the seraphim speak of God and His holiness, they say it three times. It's emphasis times emphasis times emphasis. 
absolutely holy. And when we meditate on those things and we consider the greatness of our God and the holiness of our God, it ought to lead us, number one, to lament, and number two, to be in fear and in awe of God. I don't mean trembling fear as in fear of judgment. I mean fear as in the awe, amazement at who God is. Thirdly, we should praise and worship our God for all his attributes. I love new worship songs. I really do. But I love the old hymns too. One of the things I notice that's difference between the old ones and the new ones, quite striking, is the new ones spend so much time talking about how great it is that we are here with our God. And the old ones spend more time talking about how great is our God who has allowed us into his presence. You notice the difference of emphasis? One talks more about us being with God. The other talks more about God being with us. It puts God as the priority. And just to talking about, I love music. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. And Piper, John Piper made a great comment. He said, there are thousands of new songs out there and hundreds of good ones, which is about 10%. And he said, here, you know what? If you got musical ability, write some great songs that worship and glorify God. It's our call, it's our duty to worship and God, worship God for all of his attributes. When we stand on the throne of God, we will sing the glories of the wonders of his grace. That's one of his attributes. And I don't think we'll stop there. I think we're going to go on and talk about the grace of God and all other parts of his attributes. His grace and his holiness, his grace and his love, his grace and his beauty, all the rest of them. And the psalmist says, sing praise to the Lord, you godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. In other words, express back to God thanks that he is a holy God. Psalm 71, 22, I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. That's what we are here to do. Worship a worship service. That's what we do on Sunday morning. It's a worship service or a service of worship. And when we come together, it ought to be to sing and proclaim and declare the wonders and glories, the excellencies of Christ to each other in God's hearing. Just like the seraphim crying back and forth, one to the other, holy, holy, holy. That's what we're called to do. To praise and worship Him. We should strive for holiness also. Christ is working in us to make us holy, and He's also commanded us to do our part, to work in cooperation with Him, to put off sin and follow God as close as we can, to be holy like He is. Leviticus 11.44, He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate or make yourselves holy. Another way to look at it. Uh, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. In other words, I'm so holy, I'm the God that you worship. If you're going to worship me, you better be holy too. So make yourselves holy. Of course, we know for them they could never do it. Because all the offerings and all the world, all the millions of gallons of blood that were poured out around the bottom of that altar couldn't atone for one single sin. It had to be Christ's blood that washed us clean. He makes us holy, but He calls us to put off sin, to stop going those evil ways and walk before the Lord in holiness. 2 Corinthians six fourteen 14-18 says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, 
For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Come out and be separate. So God calls us to. My brothers and sisters, I look at my own life. I look at what I see going on in popular Christianity, and it seems like we're just trying to get just as close as we possibly can to the world without actually brushing over into it. Trying to walk as close as we can. But you know, he says a few verses later, 7 and verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, or bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a call to us. You say, how is that possible? How, how can we do that? How can God expect us to do something so difficult like that? Love Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You know what it says? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he puts the desire there. You have a desire to be holy like God is? He put it there. And you say, well, okay, so he gives me the desire. Then what? Well, it's not just to will, but it's also to do. So when I put my hand out, I reach out to do what it is that he's called me to do. It's his strength. It's his enabling. It's his spirit in me giving me that power and ability to do what he's called me to do, to do what he's given me the desire to do. It's, it's our cooperation with God, but it's God's strength. It's God working in us. It's his spirit giving us the power to do these things. We should. Strive for holiness. And lastly, very end, we should serve the Lord in holiness because He is holy. I mentioned Nadab and Abihu way back in the beginning of our time. And these two guys who walked into the uh, inside of the tabernacle. I don't know what they did. Um, I, if I gave them the benefit of the doubt, I honestly think they came, went in there with intention to worship. But they had strange fire. They brought unauthorized fire, whatever it was, whether it was in the wrong sense or maybe they didn't get it from the altar or something they did that was wrong. And they walked into the presence of God to offer this strange fire in some form of worship toward God and God in His holiness because it was not exactly according to what God had told them. He struck out. The Bible says fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they were incinerated there. This is what Moses said to Aaron. Moses said to Aaron, Leviticus 10, verse 3, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron therefore kept silent. Literally what Moses said to Aaron was, Don't you dare grieve. You may not shed a tear, Aaron. You may not put off your garments. You may not tear them in the traditional Eastern method of just grief and tearing their garments because two sons lay dead on the ground. He said, you'll stand there in your garments without shedding a tear. You will not tear your garments because God is holy. 
And this is what God has done because your sons disobeyed. That's how holy our God is. But it's something else for us. How we serve the Lord is clean vessels that God requires. Why is it you can't have an unbeliever participating in leading the worship of God's people? Because they have no regard for God and His holiness. They can't. They don't know the Lord. Why is it that we must strive if we're going to take part? Why why the requirements for eldership and diaconate and all those things so high in the New Testament? They're difficult. Every elder reads 1 Timothy 3 and kind of goes, I can't do all that. It's beyond me. And it is. It's a striving to meet those requirements, but we never really ever get there. We just keep striving. And when we make a mistake, we deal with it according to Scripture. But the standards that God has set for those who serve is a high standard. It's a holiness that God requires from all of us if we're going to serve Him. We don't talk about it much, but uh, just as one closing thought, when we come in to take communion, to remember the Lord, there is a parallel from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a couple of feasts that went one after the other. One was the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread. The next was the Feast of Passover. And the last one was the Feast of Tabernacles. And they all fit into the New Testament picture of what we're doing as we come together to remember the Lord. And the New Testament tells us, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. What does that mean? I think it refers back to, it's got a mirror image in the Old Testament and the Old Testament people of Israel, when they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would search through the whole house and find every little bit and, and parse, port, bleh, I'm trying English now, every little tiny bit of snitch of yeast and find it and get rid of it. I had to get it all out of the house. You say, what's the big deal with yeast? Yeast, as most of you probably know, is a picture of sin. That's right, sin. So they had to... Uh, this, a bit. I don't know why I'm getting three words all trying to come out at the same time. Sorry. They would scrounge through the house with great diligence. In fact, as culture progressed for the, the Hebrew people, the mom would take bits of yeast and she would hide it throughout the house and the children would go through the house and they would find all the little bits of yeast and get it all completely out. They had to search the house high and low, every nook and cranny, to make sure they got rid of every little bit of yeast. When we come in this place and we sit down around the Lord's table, and 1 Corinthians 11 says, Let a man examine himself and so let him eat. There is a requirement on us, brothers and sisters, that we examine our own hearts before the Lord and we ask ourselves a simple question. Has every bit of sin been dealt with? And there is a call on us to confess that sin. In some of the more formal churches, I, I was at uh, Ridley Bible College for a little while. I went to one of their communion services. And they would have a part of the service where they would go through this um, confessing of sin in a quiet time when everybody could confess sin. And then they would sort of have this absolution statement, which was kind of strange. I, I didn't agree with it all entirely. But it was interesting what they were doing. We come in. And we often sit around the table and we partake of the Lord's table very quickly and often without much thought. What we're doing there is a very holy thing. We are celebrating fellowship with God. We're celebrating the fact that our sin has been dealt with on the cross. We're celebrating the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That God's blood, Christ's blood, who is God, has washed us clean. If we come in 
with unconfessed, known unconfessed sin in our hearts, I think we're, we're having little thought. The very best, we're despising the Lord's table. I think it's something, it's, it's imperative that as we come together to remember the Lord, we take time, even as we come together, never mind the Lord's table, as we come together week by week to just to worship together and fellowship together, I think it's imperative on us for take time before we come here to prepare our hearts for worship, to deal with anything, to pray, ask God to show us what needs to be confessed. If there's a wrong between two brothers, if Harold and I have sinned against each other in some way, to strive to get time alone to say, brother, I was wrong, I shouldn't have said, I shouldn't have done, I shouldn't have whatever, will you forgive me? But let a man examine himself and so let him eat. So you examine those yourself, you confess it before God. If you cannot meet with another brother and sister and confess and put right that sin. Resolve to do it as soon as you possibly can. And eat, celebrating the fact that sin has been dealt with. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat. But don't eat unexamined. The whole point is this, is the holiness of God. The God we serve has not changed. That's why I wanted to put unchangeableness last week and holiness this week. He is the same God as He was when He set foot on Mount Sinai. He's the same God that He was when all those things in the Old Testament happened, all those great miracles, the column of fire and cloud of smoke in the Old Testament, the, all of it. He hasn't changed one little bit. His grace has allowed us to come into His presence and sit in His presence and have fellowship with Him. But how quickly, brothers and sisters, we take His grace and turn it into a whole bunch of license to live any way we like. That's not what the New Testament talks about. Well, God is a holy God and He has called us to be a holy people. I hope and pray that you can take some of those thoughts and just give them some thought in your own heart and your own mind. Maybe there's some sin that you need to set right. Maybe something needs to be done in your life, a relationship that needs to be restored. I encourage you with all my heart, do it. Make it right. Would you pray? Let's, let's, let's stand up together and we'll pray together. Loving Father, we come again into Your presence, or we continue, Lord, in Your presence. And Father, just as I said those words, it just struck me that I cannot... God most holy with the word Father. And Father, we thank You this evening that You have indeed adopted us. You have made us Your beloved children. Father, we thank You that You have indeed called us to be holy. Father, we thank You and we worship You, O God, this evening, that You are indeed holy. And Father, we would join with the seraphim and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Father, we thank You that You have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. O God, I pray, I plead with You, O God, that we would have a fresh view, that we would take time to open the Scriptures and look in there and see the holiness of God and reflect and meditate on it. Father, to lament over the sin that we allow 
using that to drive us to plead with you for forgiveness. And Father, to live in the awe and the fear of the living God. Father, alongside of your holiness, we give thanks, O God, for your grace. And Father, the more I look and study and refresh my mind in these attributes of yours, the more it strikes me again and again and again, you are a God of infinite grace. Father, how great you are and how greatly to be praised you are. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, O God, just for the fellowship that we have one with the other. Father, we seek your blessing for the week ahead. Father, go with us. Walk with us. And Father, we thank you for the great promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you are alongside of us to help us, to strengthen us, to enable us to keep walking. Father, thank you for those promises. Father, may we live throughout this week fully mindful of the fact that you are with us, you who are absolutely holy. Father, may it, may it convict us. May it cause us to pause and give great thought to the things that we are saying and the things that we are doing, whether or not they are pleasing to you. Father, thank you for Paul's words in Ephesians 5 that we looked at this morning, trying to learn what is pleasing to you. Father, we cry out to you that we would bear fruit, real spiritual fruit, And Father, as we bear that fruit, we would be striving to know what pleases you and to doing the things that please you all the time. Father, we ask you for help. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God that you have placed within us, that empowers us and enables us and instructs us and teaches us that we might know how to live. Father, we thank you for this tremendous gift. Father, we thank you also for the tremendous gift of your word. How precious is your word to us, O God. And Father, if it is not precious to us, Father, we pray that you would deepen our hearts, ingrain it, that we would see the word of God as the greatest gift that we have. The spirit of God inspired word and the spirit indwelling in us that teaches us and helps us to understand that word and live in light of it. Father, we ask you for all these things, and we give you thanks, Father, in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.